I spoke about Rabbi Sachs um, two sessions ago, and his attempt to decode the horror of anti-Semitism. I didn't get a chance to fully explicate the, um, the metaphors he used. He called it a virus. Part of the metaphor captures the way that it morphs in every generation. I'll try to describe that a little bit. And the way he decoded anti-Semitism, its roots and its origins. But Chazal had a slightly different narrative, and none of these narratives are contradictory, they're complementary. Chazal traced the source of anti-Semitism, ironically, to Shavuos. Source number one. Amr of Chizda. Why was it called Harsina? There's so many names to that mountain. Chorig. Could we call Torah? Why, why is it the Sinai? It's a nondescript set of coordinates in the desert. Why is it called Sinai? So Chazal says phonetics. Sinai sounds like Sinai. Lama Nekoshimal Sinai Har Shigarda Sina Leuma Saolam Kula. That was the birth of anti-Semitism. Why? That was the moment we as a nation were chosen to be a clarion call to humanity. To challenge humanity to higher ground, I spoke about this in the previous lecture, to model morality and monotheism, to refuse to allow them to slip into savagery and theological confusion. And no one likes a conscience. No one likes a whistleblower. No one likes looking in the mirror and being challenged, like looking in the mirror and being ratified. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Mirrors used to work. They don't work anymore. You used to look in the mirror and see an image and correct. Today, mirrors are screens. You see yourself. You see yourself on your media books. My Rebbe Ravamita, I mentioned a few moments ago, the two people who shaped my life, who tell us the story of Mendel. Mendel in the shtetl, his job was to wake everyone up, all of Chodeshel. And he was relentless. If you slept during slichos, sedavening, pour water, tickle your feet, pull your bed out, no way you were escaping Mendel's tactics. And then it's Arab Rosh Hashanah, and everyone's in Shul, and the Zagan Slichas, Hussein Slichas, and then of Mendel's Hashlafen. Can't keep his head up. So everyone starts taking their Slichas books and rolling them up and tossing them at Mendel. And then one looks at them all bleary-eyed. I'm so tired, can't you let me sleep? They're looking and say, Mendel, you kept us awake all high and shallow. You think now that it's Rosh Hashanah, we're going to let you go to sleep peacefully? You don't let us sleep. Why should we let you sleep? Well, we are the Mendel of the world, Shtetl. We kept humanity awake for thousands of years. We demonstrated a different way to life. Family, dignity, community, belief, faith, loyalty, commandment, regulation, abstinence, innocence, kindness, compassion. And that resonates. But sometimes you don't exactly enjoy your conscience challenging you to higher ground. But take a step back. As Jews, we believe in alternate planes. If you went out there and interviewed your average anti-Semite, I don't think you would quote the Gemara. No, in shots. I don't think you would tell you the story of Mendel and Shtetl. I don't think you would attribute his hatred to Jews based on our surveys of all conscience. 
But we also believe in a metaphysical plane that sociologists and statisticians and historians can't identify. There are larger forces that affect human identity that roll throughout history that aren't detectable by science and social studies. Now, where exactly the boundary between these larger metaphysical forces and human choice? That's the hard algorithm that Hashem works out. So obviously every anti-Semite makes a choice, whether to hate or not, whether to attack or not. But there are large, dark forces that drive humanity. And they're not, they don't hate us. As Chazal tell us, source number seven. Ilu, how you yecholim, lasos chum ha-kadosh Their real beef is with HaKadosh Baruch Their real beef is with the life of demand and commitment and obligation and restraint. Rather than Epicureanism and release and free-willing promiscuity and heroism. That's their real beef. But they can't attack Hashem. So what do they do? Line number four is part seven. V'shvil she'inam yecholim lalos lamalo. V'yosem You can't battle up there, so the battle down here. It's a proxy war. They know the battle in heaven. They try. You go above all they try. They tried to scale the heavens. Humanity was brought down from her tumble roots. Man has always been trying to fly heaven and defy the gods. We're all just Prometheus down to a rock. And their battles with Hashem's surrogate proxies in this world. And that role that we play as a barrier against human regress is contained in a very, very subtle metaphor shift in gracious. If you ask people, how are the Jews allegorized in Sefer Bereshis? Stars and dirt. Dirt and stars. Mechavim and afar. Afaraz, kochavash Common denominator, plentiful. Discrepancy, stars are celestial, earth is terrestrial. Stars are unreachable, earth is trodden upon. Stars don't produce, earth produces. But there's an actual third metaphor that inches its way into Bereshis, and you don't notice it because it resembles one of them, but it's totally different. And you can detect the difference when that metaphor first emerges at the end, at the Akiva. Source number 10. Ki bar, no, I'm sorry, this isn't the Akiva, this is later. I'm sorry. Ki barech avarechecha beharba arbe esarecha kechokvei ha-shamayim nekachol asher al-sasayam The second metaphor here is not dirt, but sand. Not afar arts as it was in source number eight. Here the discrepancies between stars and sand. Kachol Asher Why are we like sand? I know we're like stars, supernatural. I know we're like earth, we're persecuted, but we still bear prosperity for humanity. Why are we like sand? So to understand the role of sand, you have to roll back history to the first appearance of sand. All of reality is once liquid. Beruach elokim erachapes, often handmade. Before, but the reality that we read about. And then in two successive waves, Hakadosh Baruch Hu separated waters. First, on day one, he separated the upper waters and lower waters, and he fixed the heaven as a plate. The barrier between the two. The water will flow, right? You know the leaks in your house. Water will always flow. It has to be buried. It has to be insulated. So the sky is insulation. But the terrestrial realm is still covered by water. It's still engulfed by water. 
So day three, what does Hashem do? Source number, do I have it here? Yes, source number 13. Now I'm going to address all this water flow underneath the heaven. Let's condense them into oceans and seas. So that so that continents can emerge from human habitat, because humans can occupy the oceans. This is preparing the planet for human experience. The Shem created separation between the ocean and the dry land. But the waters are always liquid and fluid. They're always trying to engulf the dry land. And the tides come in, and the tides go out in the water. And the sand barrier acts as a reef to prevent the waters from engulfing dry land. It's the sand that serves as barrier against the potential engulfing of human experience by the waters and the copious waters of the ocean. When you stand at the beach, you're not just witnessing a natural drama unfolding, water versus dry land, sand being the intervening barricade. You're witnessing a moral drama, a metaphoric moral drama, because the waters represent tohu disorder, chaos, evil. And the forces of evil will always exist as much as we enlighten ourselves and we create mutual alliances and European unions and economic strategic alliances, evil will always exist at the end of history. And it will always threaten to engulf humanity. And we are the sand that protects humanity against its darker self. Because we stand tall in the face of evil. We always did. Nebuchadnezzar brought the entire ancient world to its heels. He built a six-story tall building, blazing fire, blaring music. Every nation had to send an emissary to bow down to his idol. Who dared defy his authority? And it was a dark period of history, because they wanted to assume that either God had lost to other gods, or Hashem had discarded his people of both, because why else would he be discharged from Israel? If he still cared for us and was omnipotent. So it was a juncture of history, a very delicate scene of history, and Nebuchadnezzar was threatening to erase Hashem from this world, until three no-names called Hanani Nizan is a, I don't care. They don't frighten me. Your fires don't terrify me. Because we see through joggernauts, and we prove them to be paper tigers. We whisk them away like flecks of dust. I'm looking around the room, many of us in this room remember the fear we felt with the Soviet Union and nuclear uh, destruction. Remember, I had an uncle who was abandoned in Russia, and the Soviet Russia became a Communist Party member, came to visit me at my breakfast table in Brooklyn, and he was sitting having breakfast with us in the mid-70s, Uncle Yakub, and my knees were trembling under the table. He said, how's the butter? He said, sure, just what's in that suitcase? I was, of course, here's the butter. And he gave it a toy Russian tank, a toy Soviet tank, with a little red star, and I went to school, I was so proud of me, I had a Russian tank, and I had the remote control. And then two days later, the battery ran out. So I went to the drugstore to replace the batteries. It was a Russian battery. It was a square block. We don't have those batteries. So I had to trust my prized, beloved Russian bank that they couldn't get a battery for. Who dared defy the Eastern Bloc? Who dared defy the Soviet Union? A couple Jews in Moscow. We're not great. We're not coward. We're not sweet. We're not frightened. 1996, Natan Chorinsky walks across a bridge in some suburb of Germany. And what, three years later, the entire Iron Curtain falls? 
That is who we are. We look evil in the face. We're the power and authority and the abuse of power and the misuse of power in the face. We're the ghost of humanity's conscience. When humanity loses its conscience, we return it. And we challenge the world to live by our standard and to rise to higher ground and we're hated for that. Unfairly. But that was already prophesied to Abraham, and that's the mission of Judaism. I want like skipping. Let's skip that in Source 19. We'll get back there. Source 19. You will be a stranger, not just geographically, not just what your passport says. You will issue strange ideas. You will belong, but you won't belong. You will incorporate yourself into society, but you remain on its margins. Society is a hard time with us. There's some separatist groups that choose their own lifestyles, their own customs, their own mores, and they're left alone. The Aborigines, the Amish, they're quaint, they're culturally enticing. Let's go visit the original and the Amazon River's welling. They're not part of society, and they're a throwback to our collective pure selves. Then there are people that integrate the society and, and adopt the cultural norms and mores of their society, and within a few generations melt into society and take the positions. They just don't know what to make of us. We keep our customs, we maintain our identity, our names, our language, our heritage, our study, our habits, our law, but yet somehow we drive humanity. We drive civilization forward. Make up your mind. Either you're a part of us or you're not part of us. And we say, we can only lead you if we're different. We can only inspire you if we're different. We can only help you find God if we're different. So that's where we're headed. Or as Kafka said, I mentioned Kafka in the previous session, let me quote him. Great work. See if you can get your hands on this work. He had a Talmud Mufa, his chassid, was a person named Gustav Janach. Who knew? He would walk Franz Kafka home every day through the streets of Prague having conversations about life. It's prophetic. It's a small little book, about 150 pages. One line is better than the next. So he's walking his buddy, his mentor home one day through Prague. It's number 20. It's obviously not digitized. You can get it around this side. <laughs> obviously not in any digitized form. The Jewish people is scattered as a seed is scattered. As a seed of corn absorbs matter from its surroundings, stores it up, and achieves further growth, so the destiny of the Jews is to absorb the potentialities of mankind, purify them, and give them a higher development. Moses is still a reality. Then he concludes, just as Moses was opposed, so the world opposes the Jew with the cry of anti-Semitism. Here's the punchline. Next page. I'll read it because it's a little bit light. In order not to rise to the human condition, men sink into the dark depths of zoological doctrine of race. They beat the Jews and murder humanity. That's why we're here. And it's ironic, because we're so universalist. I'm getting one to play tonight. I'm going to sleep on the plane, right? <laughs> Number one's getting one to play, getting to O'Hare Airport in Chicago. A long day, taking an early flight from New York to Chicago, four or five in the morning, I have to wake up. I'm running around Chicago, freezing sleep. I finally get to O'Hare Airport, and the flight delayed. O'Hare is a business airport and, and was nothing. Atlanta replaced it, but one slight delay and one flight dominoes into a two hour, three hour delay. It's finally one in the morning, the announcement flight is taking off. Hodor Shemke's public dragged my battered body over the plane. 
sitting in the back and say, finally, no one knows my name. I don't have to be read by anything. I'm going to spend an hour and a half learning Gemara. All I want to do is learn my Gemara quietly and patiently. I turn to the man next to me, have a pleasant flight, have a pleasant flight, but nicely sit down, quiet, an hour and a half. This is great. The next thing he said, Mugnik. He starts asking, what are you reading? Be polite. Ancient Jewish law. What topic? What field? Well, I was learning the Sabbath's Neva. Grunted him. I said, ancient Jewish hygiene. And then he said the five words I at least wanted him to say. He could have said five words from George Eliot. He could have said five words from Google Randomizer. He could have read five words in the phone book. He said, don't worry, I'm a Jew. <laughs> so I looked up at a Kodesh Baruch Hu at 30,000 feet. I said, Punisher. Couldn't you sit me next to a Buddhist monk or an Irish priest <laughs> or a stewardess? I said, I work for you for 18, 20 hours. I just want to quiet in peace not to be the car of this guy. I ain't gotten okay, but Hashem calls you, you don't say, you don't have a choice. Your answer. Amen. So I start making small talk with him. What does he do? He's a professor at MIT. Okay, I'm the Rebbe in Gush. Right off the bat, we have a line coming. So I give him some pedagogic skills. I don't know how to construct his lessons a little bit better. And he turns to me and says, Rabbi, you're married, married, your kids, your kids. I don't understand something. He says, I understand falling in love with someone with your trajectory and her trajectory overlap, they intersect, but your trajectory will deviate from her trajectory, will okay, and Kind of explain to this professor of physics, marriage isn't physics. Not about trajectories. Not just chemistry. It's not physics. Trajectory, it's confidence, it's commitment, it's loyalty, it's love, it's mutual, it's reciprocity. Okay, listen, I'm learning, he's listening, the food comes. Then he looks at me, Rabbi, I always wanted to know. So, oh, that's a shocker. <laughs> I've always wanted to know what makes Judaism different from every other religion. Every religion has their traditions and their heritage, passed on from generations. Why believe? So it was a very long fight. And I'll only share one of the things I told him. So, you know I believe? Because my religion is the most universalistic religion. So, what do you mean, Rabbi? You speak about, we speak about the chosen people and God's children and we don't share 99.1% of the same DNA and the Asians and the, 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 the Spanish. We're all equal. Things are the most universal. I said, what do you mean? I said, do you know that for every Christian in this world there's a bullseye in the back? Because in their end game, their messianic narrative, every single human being converts to Christianity or is eliminated as the infidel. And you know that for every Muslim there's a bullseye on your back. Because in their messianic narrative, everyone converts to Islam or Islam and is an infidel, and Islamic from another Muslim has begun that agenda. I have absolutely zero interest in converting one soul to Judaism with absolutely no conversion agenda. What is our endgame? Universal harmony and prosperity for humanity on their terms. They will gather and see Hashem. They will realize the value of seven through the prison of 613, and their lives will be elevated on their terms. They will not show up in Midray, they won't take Lula, they won't put on Tefillin, they won't get down as a Mishpacha, but their lives will be forever open. I mentioned before, I'm going a little bit off road, I mentioned before the ability to merge universalist agendas with nationalist identity. Here's a mind experiment, but don't hoot me out of the room, let me finish. If you have 24 hours and you could either enter a lab and solve cancer, or set on a hilltop in Israel, what would be your choice? I would settle a hilltop. 
That's my first answer. Because <laughs> your answer is selfish, and mine is universal. Why? Because you'd be solving cancer in 24 hours. But I would be advancing the Shia. When he comes, I would be solving cancer, AIDS, corona, strife, poverty, suffering, warfare. Don't solve your cancer. I'm going to be landscaping my life. Now, the flaw in the logic, I don't want to do that. I'll be right next to you. We'll be a good lab partner, but whatever. I actually have a molecular genetic background, so I think it's really useful. Because I couldn't guarantee Mashiach as that lab Because I don't have that guarantee. My rational senses guarantee that I can solve cancer. I don't have the ability to rely on supernatural scenarios. But if I knew that by pressing the button, I could advance Mashiach, that would be the most universal choice. I don't know it's a little play by rational rules. I would have to that as well. But that merging between the two, and that universal, and I spoke about it through the voice of the sax, if you want to add something there with them. But we're hating for it, and it's a little frustrating. Now, what are the consequences of this, of seeing anti-Semitism that way? It's a very delicate question. Number one, don't be fatalistic. Things can change. Whatever we're facing today is night and day from what our ancestors faced. And whatever anti-Semitism and hostility and anti-Israel sentiment, your parents in a heartbeat will straight place. And thank God we're protected by governments and we're protected, of course, by Israel and the Armenian. Heavens aren't falling. And every act that we take, very sex, as I mentioned earlier, was at the forefront of this movement. The battle of anti-Semitism, to decry it, and to uh, uh, expose it as hatred and bigotry. It's purposeful and effective, and it deserves all of our resources. But don't confuse that with the assumption that we can uproot it and die. Anti-Semitism will end when history ends, not a minute before. And you have to thread that balance, because it can lead to fatalism, and it can lead to a pessimistic outlook, and it can lead to devaluing all the amazing, immense efforts we're taking. But don't fall into a false narrative. And to a degree, I think the Putin horror reminds us that we spin false narratives that are convenient for us. We just educate people. We'll see it as if we just create strategic alliances that we can't. Evil is evil. Hatred is hatred. This is the oldest hatred. It's baked into the human condition. We can severely curb it and curtail it, and Baruch Hashem, we have, and we should, but don't just assume with enough education, enough enlightened government, it will disappear. It will disappear when everyone gathers in Yushalayim and says Hashem. Hallelujah, Hashem, Kogoyim, Shabbat Hu'ukalam, I'm gathering in Yushalayim, and as we say in Rosh Hashanah, V'yeda kol po'o k'yata p'yaltao, V'yavim ko yitzur k'yata yitzartao, Thank us for having the patience to outlast their aggression. But don't thank us, but it won't end before you. Number two, Jewish history is different from Western history. Western history is seen as open-ended, evolutionary, progressive, undetermined. Jewish history is like a serpent. We've been there before. And what happened before will happen again. We shouldn't be surprised by it, because Jewish history exists in repeating cycles and patterns, and we learn from our past, and we're able to predict the future. Not, preci- not with precision, but with a sense of where this is heading. In order to commit genocide, you have to package it. You can't sell murder to people. 
It's a caricature, the victims of your genocide as the frightening other as the so Hitler adopted the social Darwinism, the, use of the, the eugenics of his day, to paint this as a sub-Aryan race, worthy of extermination, to cleanse humanity in order to preserve it. He was just drawing upon the intellectual milieu of the late 19th century, early 20th century, which is to a degree what's happening with BDS. It's no longer politically correct to speak of race and its superiority, and we all share the same DNA, so it's, it's, it's hijacking the current post-colonial narrative that virtue always lies with the weak and crime with the oppressors. And we are seeing, we're being cast, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. What's happening in Ukraine right now is just a rehearsal. They're just preparing the paradigms and then superimpose on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict without thinking, just, just pressing the button and sharing the media. So it's just superimposition. It's, it's going to get a lot worse. Don't be frightened, just repeats and then occurs in cycle. So it was now, so it was then, so it was in the time. How did Tyler sell genocide to his people? Hava Nishak Malo. Let's gather and find some solution. Hava Nishak Malo. Penter Bev, Hayaki, the Bev, and Yochama. Venosatka, Mural, Sanino, Venilkam, Banu, Venilu, Minaret. So I'll be that fifth wheel. So I'll be that fifth column. We have, we're at war with the Hittites. We're at war with global, with, with foreign powers. There'll be moles. There'll be saboteurs. You don't read this because we reach most too quickly. This is Hitler's first moment. The first packaging of genocide. Now, they're not exterminated immediately, but it's a slow burn. Once you cast them as the foe of the enemy, you can dehumanize them, you can stereotype them, you can paint them as the other, and then all sorts of offenses are legitimate. Which is why stereotypical thought is so dangerous because it casts human beings as cardboard cutouts rather than individuals. Any form of stereotype. We live on stereotypes because we don't have the time to actually peer into human beings and understand the complexity, which is our force to respond quickly and we just connect the dots to, in place of processing. We don't find the process. Or another pattern that's evident from the beginning of time. Who is Paro speaking to? Hava Nishak Malo. Source number, um, Anytime the word Hava appears in Tanakh, it's people planning a joint enterprise. Remember Miguel Baba? Hava Nil Benalavanian? For a factory. It's collaboration. Hard to really collaborate anymore. He's a supreme ruler. Because I'll tell us there was a summit meeting. Now, the metaphor for the summit meeting is Yisrael attended, so it's number 17, and Bellon attended, and Yield attended. Whether this medrash is literal, there was Yom sitting at his table, and Yisrael sitting at his table, and Bellon sitting at that table, a metaphor was a summit meeting of different powers. Here's a little secret. Those different powers didn't exactly get along. There were natural enemies, Midian and Mitzrayim, Bilam and Egypt, but they're united in hatred. Hatred unites. We know that, right? And the oldest hatred is a greatest unifier. Imagine if you were asked to schedule an anti-Semitic conference. Let's say you, that was your job. So you first gather the anti-Semites of Europe, who are primarily hyper-liberals, we sheepishly buy into that false narrative of David and Goliath, an oppressor and oppressed. 
and the Nazification of the Jewish identity, and thinking all the hyper-liberal academicians and Islamic fundamentalists and multicultural Europeans that are together in one section, and then you combine them with the American anti-Semites, the white supremacists, who feel that the Jews are contaminating the national pride that's been stolen by the Democrats, and the Jews are controlling, of course, the Democrats, while they're also controlling the Republicans. I wish you luck conducting the anti-Semite conference. They'd kill each other. The white supremacists would look across the aisle at their hyper-liberal counterparts, many of them Muslim, and they want to shoot him. But hatred is nuts. Anti-Semitism is even a violent hatred. Just like it is between Shiites and Sunnis, who can't agree to anything other than Al-Qaeda's and their hatred of the Jews. So it was in Israel. So it was in Europe. One day you're a communist, one day you're a globalist, capitalist. <laughs> you have to know which way the wind's blowing, you know what you're being accused of. The Germans control the shtetl, you're a communist. The next day the Russians control the shtetl, but you're a geo-economist, secretly pulling the strings and the deep secrets of That's why all these conspiracy theories are so, so dangerous. All the conspiracy theories end in anti-Semitism. Because conspiracy theories are pitched on the notion that there's a secret agenda being woven behind the scenes. What are they really up to that we don't know about? And once you start buying into that narrative, well, who's pulling the strings? The Jews. That's what's so dangerous about all these conspiracies. They all end up in one conclusion, which is understanding how things unfold, where this is headed. So you have to be very, very careful to see anti-Semitism in its roots and its butts. Because anti-establishment conspiracy theories are very, very contagious. And they spread very quickly because the conspiracy in one area convinces the conspiracy in another area, and you see goblins and demons in every corner. Then there must be some secret you're not exposed to. You get manipulated, so he's manipulating me to face this other, he's up face this other. And of course, another pattern is that it'll always come in two forms. It'll be military, it'll be verbal. The Rambam wrote a beautiful letter to the community of Yemen in the 12th century. They were facing a dual challenge of a false messiah, which always carries dashed expectations, and an Islamic fundamentalist persecution. Al-Hariz, I forget the exact name of the sect, but waves and waves. And generally, generally, it was safer to live in Arabic lands in that period, but it wasn't a picnic, it wasn't a cakewalk. The Queen of Yemen was depressed, demoralized, and they sent a letter to the Rambam who responded with his famous Igeris Taman, and he became the rock star of Yemenite Jewry. And they, they dove into the Rambam, <laughs> including in their trilos, because of that letter. And he quoted to them a verse in Yeshai. Kol Kli, source number 14, any weapon raised against you will be thwarted. And any tongue raised against you will be severe. You see the duality? Kol kli lo tzlach, kol hashon lo tzlach. will be invaded. So the Rambam reminded the people of Yemen that we're always going to face a double-fronted war. It'll be military. It'll be hostile. It'll be violent. It'll be weaponized. Totally. 
but it will also be verbal, it will also be theoretical, it will be conceptual. And the Rambam, I won't read this that passage now, but look, it says number 15, the Rambam says, what is the verbal assault we're facing? The disputation of Judaism. This is the high period in which Judaism is being put on trial in Barcelona, in Paris, even if it's not in official terms, in shtetls and cabanas across the world. And you know what? If you're living in the 12th century, it does appear that Judaism has failed. It does appear that God has abandoned. Or maybe God has been defeated because look at Christianity spreading spectacularly and Islam even more so. And you're living in the muck, in the wreckage, in the debris of Jewish history. Or it appears that way. And the Rambam is reinforcing their will and reinforcing their faith. It's an amazing Rambam. Don't worry, it will continue, but one day it will fail. Well, I alluded to this before, or the Shabbos thing, but also, something are dynamic organisms that change with the passage of time. If they read them differently, that's history unfolds. So the Rambam read this Pasuk in the Shai in the 12th century the way he did, but I have to tell you, the Pasuk has new meaning and even more literal meaning in the 20th century, 21st century. Read the Pasuk again, and I'll tell you what the Pasuk means today. Kol Hashem, Kol all the planes and weapons and guns and knives will be thwarted. Kol all the tongues raised against you, la mishpat, or she will be indicted. And not only disputing religion, come on, it's the 22nd century, 21st century, religion, theological discussion, that's where our BBC, Rabbi Sachs, on the Sunday morning, it's not really ratings. But what does get the ratings is, oh, you're the moral children of God. You're baby killers. You're conducting an apartheid state. You yourself are immoral. Scratch a sin, scratch a say, discover a sinner. The easiest way to discard moral conscience is to accuse it of hypocrisy. So if they can prove that we are really immoral and unethical and apartheid and insensitive to the moral concerns of others, then our moral message has been deflated. This is exactly what the Prophet means. It couldn't be more prophetic. We are being indicted in the Hague. Indicting us metaphorically and literally. Hashem promises us, Tarshim. One day those voices will be this world. One day those voices will be quiet. Patterns help us predict, and patterns also help us see Jewish history through prophetic lenses of cycles. So we aren't overwhelmed by it. So we see a protest that's happened before. Again, not to enfeeble us into passivity. We should protest and counter-protest. But the fear and the panic and the heavens are falling, and this is unprecedented, and what will we do? And they're rallying, and the prophetic perspective provides poise. It's a nice place. Prophetic perspective provides poise. Not passivity, but poise. We've seen this before, it's happened before, in much more violent fashion. And now we're living through our cycle, and the struggle of history continues, and we have our role to play in the historical context that we were placed. It will end when history ends. Baruch Hashem, we're living in a world in which we're dealing with protests, not Baruch Hashem with terror, but again. I remember a couple of years ago, we saw them, and a few boys were taken hostage in Israel. 
And um, I was very, my family says that, I can never speak of what I just thought, but my son was very close with her son, my roommates. So when the police came, they interviewed my son to the police. And to their credit, their credible family, they remained close with my colleagues, four or five best friends. And my son's second visit with his column, when he got married to his wife to the house, the first boy was held up in the house and went to the house of the father. And the family's husband had a breath on him, which is mind-boggling to be able to have that stature and that stamina, emotional stamina. So um, it's, I was more involved in the experience, and I became more of a voice for the overseas community, helping them process the events, his social media, pictures, voices. Asat Rebbe and Nancy laid the blame for their death at the foot of the parents. He said, the parents put these kids into dangerous situations by letting them attend institutions in Israel and the West Bank. It is their fault they were murdered. You could just imagine the outcry, the public response. is deafening. It's hideous. It's horrific. So my Rebbe Ravamikal always taught us to see things counterintuitive. That's where real truth lies. Because if you think in formulaic terms, we just think by rub. You put your head on a swivel, you'll see things you haven't seen before. I always need people put your head on a swivel. That's what he taught me. I always appreciate people make my head spin. Because until my head's spinning, I'm just rehearsing the past. When my head starts to spin, there's something I didn't see. Remember, I remember would tell me, you know people say, at first I tried to change the world. And that became too difficult so I focused on my family. And then when I realized I couldn't change my family, I just withdrew and I tried to change myself. So he raised his finger. He was like, stay out, stay out, stay out. Stupid. Don't think like that. Stay out of here. Stay out, stay out. Don't think. You know what really happens? First, people try to change themselves. When they can't change themselves, they try to change the family. <laughs> when they can't change the family, they try to change them. It's always easier to be a celebrity lecturer. Try being a good husband. That's the rough Try being a good father. Try being a good person. Whenever I'm here now, I'm worth nothing. If tonight when I look in the mirror, I see a lecturer looking back at me, or a rabbi looking back at me, or a hero looking back at me. If I see emotion therapy as a good person, and a good husband, and a good father, and a good grandfather, and Donald's love, then I succeeded. This life goes well, it goes wrong. And that's not going to count in I'm not going to get by on the strength of my lectures. I shouldn't have heard it all. <laughs> not coming to the Mizrahis, you know. Put the thing a little bit counterproductive. So I issue a response to the Satmar Rebbe, which is entitled, Why I Agree with the Satmar Rebbe. Oh my goodness, 10,000 hits over there. Why would a settler rabbi agree with the Satmar Rebbe? So I did some number crunching. And I assess the amount of non-natural deaths of adolescent boys in Monroe County in Muncie where the Sadmar Rebbe lived during the summer of 2016-15. How many kids died in drug-related? How many kids died in, in car accidents? How many kids died in random crime? And I compare the relative safety of living in Muncie in 2015 to the relative safety of living in Christian during 2015. And it was staggering. It was about 30 times safer to live in Christian Zion during the summer of 2016 than it was in Muncie. Because terror is psychological. Because they're targeting you. This crime is random. Nature is random. And the only response is courage. 
Another response is poise and perspective. A couple of weeks ago, some of our Talmudim, the Bush went to Poland. So one of the Rebbe's I didn't come to the trip, they visited some refugees in the detention center, uh, uh, and um, they met some Jews there. So one of the boys asked one of the Ukrainian refugees, do you plan on moving to Israel? And he said, that's dangerous. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> The thin line of Japanic and production. And that thin line is a boundary of the one has to create confidence and poise, ability to withstand intimidation. Not recklessness. You have to take every precaution you can. We've been there before. We've seen the story. We know how it begins. We know how it ends. The only question is how soon will end and whose shoulders will carry the narrative for its completion. Everything else is actually strong. Have a great evening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.